Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 1st, 2014, and this is our first broadcast from our new temporary home in Panama City, Florida. We, um, Melissa and I are going to miss Bristol, and of course we left her family behind, and, and um, we're going to miss them. Hopefully we'll see them in, in, in the months to come, at, at least once. We plan a trip there in um, mid to late September, I believe. The, um, the move will be better for her health and, and, and hopefully better for both of us in, in our endeavors and, and in, um, perhaps in, in being able to fellowship with certain brethren and, and also with, um, prospective, um, street advocacy and things like that. Bristol was a, um, a pretty strange town, and, and I didn't feel comfortable there at all. And in a lot of ways, in some ways I did. And, and I'll probably talk more on that in the months to come. Tonight, I really don't have a lot to say unless it's about moving and packing and, and um, the long drive, which I don't, certainly don't want to bore you with. Last week, I did a program with Brother Ryan on the Friday night program. And, and we talked about Christian identity, doctrines, dogmas, and agendas. I don't know if the two hours plus that we did really served e- even all three of those um, facets of the discussion any justice. The um, the idea that. William Fink is trying is trying to rewrite Christian identity, or William Fink is rewriting Christian identity. I, I don't, you know, these people, these clowns that say these things, as if I'm some sort of heretic, are really. Um, and there are many of these people. These, this, the entire insane clown posse insists that I'm trying to rewrite Christian identity. It, it's um, very clear that there is no Christian identity doctrine. And anyone who thinks that he has all truth and that the work that our predecessors did cannot be improved upon, that person is blind because no man has all truth. Not today, not to this day, not till tomorrow, and, and not in the days to come. Only Yahweh our God has all truth, and he reveals it to us as he sees fit. Blindness, the blindness of Israel, is also a manifestation of, the, of, of their, um, their punishment. Swift and Compare. And Gale, and Sheldon Emery, and and Pete Peters, those guys didn't decree on everything. In fact, there's a lot that each of them were in disagreement with. 
that they didn't air the disagreements out in public. They didn't attack people for their disagreements. They didn't constantly troll other people's forums because they disagreed with them. Wesley Swift, I'm sure, didn't sit in Pete Peter's church and shout profanities from the back rows, just as an example. I don't think Peters was preaching when Swift was alive, but that's besides the point. You get the point. They didn't publicly attack each other with sock, uh, a thousand sock puppets on forums. No, sir. They didn't do those things. That's because they were Christians. Christians don't troll each other's forums. Christians don't constantly publicly attack others. If you're here and you're trolling this forum tonight, or if you call in and you know you're not invited, and the insane clown posse, they know who they are. Well, they prove that I'm right about them. That their only reason for calling themselves, for, for attaching to themselves the label of Christian identity is because they want to discredit it by turning it into a circus. And it's not going to work. They're not going to be able to do that. They might, um, they might make temporary headway with a few people, <clears throat> but if anybody gets turned off from Christian identity because of the insane clown posse and their antics, well, that person probably didn't belong inquiring into Christian identity in the first place. I'm not trying to rewrite Christian identity. Clifton Emmerheiser isn't trying to rewrite Christian identity. All our work revolves around taking what our forebears did and sorting it out and getting rid of the chaff and keeping the weed and refining it and solidifying the message because we know that it is true. Everything on Christian, everything on org, and the people that try to claim that I'm rewriting Christian identity are ignoring the reasons for my website in the first place. Everything on org seeks to put Christ Christian identity on a firm academic foundation. However, the only thing that, that Christogenia claims to be, and it's right on our own webpage, is it claims to be an exposition of the historical and theological studies of myself. That's the only thing that Christogenia claims to be. It doesn't claim to be the Christogenia website. It doesn't claim to be the Christogenia catechism. 
Christagenia is the home of my own historical and theological research. That's all it is. That's all it's meant to be. There are subdomains that are meant to be the home of the theological works of others, such as Clifton Emmerheiser, Wesley Swift, even though I don't agree with Wesley Swift in many respects. Bertrand Compare, even though I don't agree with Bertrand Compare in many respects. And guess what? Bertrand Compare and Wesley Swift, they did not agree with each other in many respects. And that's what we tried to um, elucidate last Friday with Brother Ryan, who has been a long-time student of P. Peters, Wesley Swift, Bertrand Compare, Sheldon Emery. These men were at odds with themselves on the issues that we attempt to clarify at Christogenia, especially on the race issue. Some of Compare's own statements conflicted with other statements made by Compare. Some of Wesley Swift's own statements conflicted with other statements made by Wesley Swift, especially on the issue of race and on the nature of the non-white races and on the origins of the non-white races where they sought, they sought to squeeze them into scripture and they don't belong in scripture. But we demonstrated, even though in many places statements can be found from Swift, from Compare, from Emery, which contradicted the statements that we offered here last week from those same men on the race issue. Even though that is the case, we see that they were in conflict with themselves and that quite often all of those men were agreeable to what we teach at Christogenia on the issue of the non-Adamic races, their origin, and their fate. If trying to um, cut through the bullshit, if trying to draw a clear message on this most important issue, if that is attempting to rewrite Christian identity, that's not true. Not at all. We're only attempting to define what we believe Christian identity should be. We're not forcing that belief on others. You could go have your own Christian identity podcasts, websites. You don't have to agree with me. Why are you trolling my forums? Why are you trolling my talk to you page right now? I'll tell you why. Because you're not Christian identity at all. You're a bastard. And you're afraid of the Christian identity message. You're afraid of its success. You don't belong in Christian identity. So you're trying to discredit it. That's why you're here. That's why last week, Brother Ryan and I spoke about 
doctrines and dogmas. And I don't think we did the subject of dogmas enough justice. There are many things that we are not that are not revealed to us in the scripture. And those things we shouldn't beat each other over the head with. We shouldn't insist that somebody believe one way or another. For instance, I'm often asked, how did the fallen angels create the other races if the fallen angels created the other races? Did they have sex with donkeys? Did they create them in test tubes? Did they simply crossbreed the other races or did they breed with themselves? That, that there are indications of what we can believe but there's no explicit statement in scripture that we can create a doctrine from so that is a dogma and we shouldn't beat each other over the head with dogmas it's unchristian. We don't make dogmas our catechism. That's where we sought to discuss agendas. When you want to make a dogma your catechism and insist somebody believes something that the scripture does not offer, then you must have an agenda. If you insist that Yahweh God created Chinamen in the beast creation of Genesis 1.25, even though there is no indication of that in Scripture anywhere, then that's a dogma. And you're trying to squeeze other races into the creation of God. And Yahweh God did not take credit for creating those races. You are promoting a dogma and that's usually because you have an agenda. That's the purpose of the program we did last week with Brother Ryan. We plan on doing more of those type of programs in the future. We wanted to um, we want to take a moment to thank Brother Ryan for his um, well, well, the program we did here last week, but but more importantly, his videos um, which he's made lately in support of our work at Christagenia. It's um, good to have a Christian brethren who are willing to speak out, even if we don't agree on everything but who are willing to speak out in unity because we agree on most things. And that's been, to me, that's been lacking lately, even amongst listeners of our programs, because we don't see enough um, activism in promoting this common message that we should have these common ideals that we should have. 
if you profess to be an identity Christian, you, above all other Christians, should be working to spread this message. Because the only valid Christian ministry today according to the words of our Redeemer, if we believe that we are in the last times. Then the only valid Christian ministry is the Elijah ministry of Malachi chapter 4. That's what Christian identity is. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. To teach the racial covenant message. That's the Elijah ministry. That's our obligation. If you're an identity Christian, you should be doing your utmost to spread the truth of the racial covenant message. Tonight is um, open lines, and we're going to take calls. And, of course, I invite participation, questions, statements, suggestions, and we'll entertain everybody we, we, we can find, but we will not entertain trolls. Don't try it. You'll only end up looking stupid. We're going to take a call from New York. Hello. Welcome hey, to um, Chris Alan Rouse, how are you? Alan, <laughs> so you did make it. Great to hear from you. How are you? I, I, I blew off the beach so I could be here. Yeah, you know, I got a question for you. Would you believe that there are people out there that think I talk funny? <laughs> I, I'm glad well, to hear well, they'll, they'll listen to me for a bit, and then I'll take the heat for that. <laughs> I, 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 I told you... Um, in a message on the forum that it would be nice to hear from somebody with a stronger New York accent than mine. And, and then okay. maybe they won't think I talk so funny. <laughs> okay, well, well I, I got an earful for them. Okay, well, anyway, as you already mentioned, the last time that you had Brother Ryan on, you were discussing Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compare and their teachings on the gathering of the tares, exterminationism, and the eternal destination of non-whites. Now, Swift's idea of exterminationism only went as far as the physical removal of non-whites from the earth at Christ's second appearance. He was pretty consistent with the idea of the quote-unquote restoration of all things. And it is evident in the body of work that we have from Dr. Swift that he considered the products of violation of kind after kind to be part of Yahweh's creation anyway. Um, Bill, you've done the CI community a great service in developing a sound theological understanding 
of kind after kind, and all of its eternal ramifications. Now, Dr. Swift was a firebrand whose ministry put Christian identity on the map, so to speak, but he was ultimately a universalist, in that his eternal vision included everybody. Now, I've, I've gathered some interesting quotes from a sermon entitled, The Mysterious Incidents That Mark the End of the Age, and this is from February 26, 1962. And I think that these, these quotes paint a very clear picture of Dr. Swift's eternal worldview. So let me read um, these quotes. It's four quotes. And then I want to ask you about one reference he uses in the last quote. Okay, quote number one. Now Jesus said that the tares were of the evil one and that they were here. And the enemy which sowed them was the devil. And Jesus did not make any other statement about this. He was just telling you that these are a species. These were fallen angels who did not keep their first estate, and now they were devils. The devils are just like anything else, like a horse or a hog. He is a species. You can't make a man out of a devil, and you can't make a Christian out of one either. Don't try to waste your time. Someone says, but that is not Christian. Oh, but that is Christian. For God never wasted his time calling devils. He said, you can't understand what I say. You can't understand my speech, for I know who you are. You are on another wavelength, and that is a devil band. How can you lock onto the Spirit when you do not have it? Remember the words of Jesus. Unto you I pour out the paraclete, the intelligence of my intellect, to guide you and lead you into the knowledge of all truth even the spirit that the world cannot receive, unquote. Okay. Now, quote number two from the same sermon. Now, God makes this clear in the book of Matthew. He says one thing which is going to happen is that the tares are going to be gathered up, and just like you clean your own harvest field, God says we are going to take the tares out. Now, he did not say that he was going to put them in a fire and burn them. He left that up for some superstitious clergyman to talk about. So what did he say, and what did he say he would do? He said, I'm going to send my ministering spirits, and they will come in a great space fleet. Oh, you say, but it does not say that in the Bible. Yes, it does, he said. I am going to send for my heavenly hosts, and they are going to come down, and they will gather out everything that offends and everything that does iniquity. They are going to gather it out. This is in the book of Matthew, and my, there is going to be a lot of wailing on the part of the opposition to the kingdom who have lost some of their most important figures, unquote. Okay, quote number three. Now, I want to tell you something that you may not have thought about. The people taken are not the good ones. You know a lot of the churches have been flying the Christians away. The devil would really go for that story. If you would take all of the Christians out of the way, he would really take over. But who said anything about taking the Christians out of this world? Didn't Jesus say, don't take them out of the world, keep them in it? It tells me that it is the tares that they are going to gather up. They are going to take them out to the constellation of Arach and keep them there until, in God's own time, only He knows when, 
They are going to learn their lesson, unquote. Okay, and then the last quote, but I can tell you that one of these days, the reinforcements will come in and the worst of these will disappear. And you will never see them again for ages and ages to come. And when you do see them again, they will look at Uncle Sam and say, Uncle, you know, they are going to get right down on their knees and look into the face of Christ and say, God. And they will look at you and say, the kingdom of God. And they are going to worship at your feet. I can show you this in the book of Revelation. Satan, his own family, his own Jewish sons, are going to worship at your feet, unquote. So, well, the question, well, I think the, the passages I just read, and, and I, I'm, I'm very familiar. I mean, I spent, when I first started getting into Christian identity, I was listening to Wesley Swift and Bertram Cabaret seven hours a night, every night, at, at my job while I was working. I'm very familiar with, with these, well, more so Swift, but... Um, well, anyway, my question was, what is your take on the passages in Revelation where it speaks about the Jews, you know, prostrate before us, acknowledging who we are? What, where does that, in your opinion, when does that happen? What, you know, if you could elaborate on your take on that. That happened, that, that happened for a thousand years in medieval Europe. When the Jews what were chattel property of the kings and princes of Europe. Oh, and okay. Did oh, indeed sorry. bow before their feet. Did indeed um, play a, a secondary and, and often servile role to Christians. I mean, the whole time they plotted against Christians, but they did indeed play that role historically. All during yeah, but, the medieval but, period. But 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 but, but the, the verse the verses seem to indicate that they're well, I don't know, maybe it, it seems to I don't know the verses seem to indicate that that they will genuinely acknowledge, or, or am I misreading that they will genuinely acknowledge? But see, I I've, I've sort of well, well, that's something that we're interpolating into the text, right? That's something that men are interpolating into the text. Just like Wesley Swift projected that text into the future and imagined that because of that one passage, because of that one passage of Scripture, that Jews would live in, into the kingdom age, into the future. Right. And, and that's a horrible, that, that's a horrible Bible interpretation. And Matthew 13 does say, that the tares would be gathered and burned in the fire. It clearly says that. Yes. Uh, yes Wesley yes. Swift, the point of last week's program was to show that there are many places in, in and I picked two or three out of Wesley Swift, a couple out of Comparay, one or two out of Sheldon Emery. I didn't have enough time. I, I'm not a reader of Sheldon Emery's works. I, I've only read maybe one track from him. I haven't read a Swift or a Comparay track in, in um, probably 12, 14, 15 years now. But... I did um, get my start from Swift and Comparé. And, and 
Emery's work wasn't attainable to me, so I never really got it. I, I do remember one essay early on. Maybe it was um, something. It was something about all the races related to creation, related to the flood. I don't remember. Related to the kingdom of heaven, I don't remember. It was something about all the races. Are all the races going to get salvation? Or, or were all the races destroyed in the flood? I don't remember. But it was something about all the races. Emery was definitely a, um, a separatist that understood that scripture and, and the Bible were books for white people and the promises were for our race. And, and so was Comparé and so was Swift. But, my point in the Swift and Compare and Emery quotes that I made was simply to show that there are places where they did agree with what I teach. However, we also expressed, and we couldn't have time to, to, to name all the places like you just found four, but we also expressed the idea that these men were in conflict with themselves in many places. Now, Swift... Yeah did believe that these um, other races would, were to be taken to the constellation, constellation of Ara, A-R-A, which, which is actually from a word that means altar, I believe. And, and um, to me, that belief, I cannot fathom it. I, I cannot fathom where he may have gotten that from out of Scripture. I will say this. Wesley Swift read the Zohar. And the Zohar is not, as Swift claimed, a very ancient book. It might have some things in it that are very ancient, but the Zohar is a book of medieval Jewish mysticism, and it's straight garbage. I wouldn't, well, I, I, I won't be vulgar, but I, I don't think anything at all about the Zohar. It's not worth our time. I wouldn't spend two seconds on that book. Isn't the Zohar part of the Talmud? <coughs> well, well, yes. The Zohar is part of the Talmud. And, 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 and it's one of the works of the Kabbalah. But that doesn't mean that it's ancient. Much of the Talmud wasn't written uh, until well after the destruction of Jerusalem. Right. Second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. The Kabbalah and the Zohar came later. And they were compilations done by medieval rabbis. They're not as old as some of their proponents claim them to be. You know, I haven't I haven't um I haven't listened to Swift regularly in quite a while, but were his references to the his references to the Zohar, I mean, I, I, I do recall hearing him talk about the Zohar, um, but what exactly he said, I mean, I presume that he was making reference to the Zohar in a manner of saying, you see, this is what these Jews really think, right? Well, well no, he's quoted the Zohar as, as, as authority in some instances. Israelite authority? I believe so. I'm going I'm to have to go back and... and well, well, we should. Well, let's do a search on the Zohar and Wesley Swift. But my, my, he, he clearly read the book. He quotes it many times. And, and my point is this. The man had no intellectual hygiene. Wesley Swift had no intellectual hygiene. 
and, and he brought in a lot of strange, odd beliefs into his theology and promoted them as truth. Now, at the same time, he did a, a, a lot of good and, and yeah. really did bring Christian identity in, into the... Um, to, to some extent in, into um, greater popularity, let's put it that way, in, in America. And, and he did um, say a lot of things that were right and that were good and, and that were good for um, the development of our theology. But that doesn't mean we should stop there first. And that doesn't mean that he was perfect. He was far from perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. Compare was a much more discerning man. And Compare, for that reason, because Compare had a lot more intellectual hygiene and stuck to the Bible and history, Compare made far fewer mistakes, even though he neither was he perfect. And, and um, he, he, he left out all of the um, mysticism and and uh, I mean people love that stuff people are fascinated by it and that's why I think a lot of people like Swift but Swift said a lot of things that are either wrong or simply can't be substantiated so they may as well be wrong yeah I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Swift and Comparey weren't more on the same page I mean they were friends Comparey was Swift's lawyer um and I, you know, I've gotten the impression from the, the tapes that, you know, they, they saw each other fairly regularly, you know, or, and communicate. I'm surprised that they, there was such a, a, a gap, or, you know, that there was, but I, I know what you're saying. There is a lot of, sometimes, I'm trying to think of something, but I have heard Wesley Swift say some things that I just shook my head and, and <laughs> what was he thinking? <laughs> Well, well, the Zohar, I, I typed Zohar into the Wesley Swift Library search engine at Christagenia, and, and it, it comes up an awful lot that there are um, over 10 pages of results. So, so there's over 100 results for Zohar in Swift's work. Now, now, a lot of them are that Ella Rose Mast, but a lot of them are Wesley Swift. So, so the book was often mentioned. He, he talks in in um. I, I'll give an example here, very quickly, in in a sermon called um, "A Living Priesthood in a Living Temple," done on March fourth, nineteen sixty-two. Wesley Swift said about the Zohar. Go back to the days of Enoch and see that there was still some, there was still continuous evidence of spiritual power in the days of Moses. This was the abiding presence of the Most High. I, I don't, in Enoch and Moses were some generations apart, right? But the significant thing today, as we study this tabernacle, and we won't go any further with that discussion because we have already showed you how it was carried and where it was taken and where it reposes, but the great significance was the things taught in the ancient Zohar and taught in the spiritual priesthood were the things which belong only to your race. That's a positive statement about the Zohar. 
which mm-hmm. I think is garbage. I think the book is garbage. It's a it's a it, it's a product. Even though there might be things in it that that are that are ancient, it's a product of medieval Jewish mysticism. That's what the Zohar is. It was compiled by medieval rabbis. Now they may have borrowed from older works, and they usually do, but. I wouldn't take this as a legitimate book by any means. None whatsoever. Was there some question? Like, you know, has, has there been some question as to whether or not it was of authentic Israelite origin as opposed to Jewish rabbi bullshit? Or I find it hard to believe that he would do that. That, that he would... I mean, I don't know. Was there some... I have never seen any indication whatsoever that the Zohar is truly an ancient, legitimate book. None whatsoever. Hmm. It's Kabbalah, it's, it's medieval Talmud, it's garbage. And it is the mind of, of, it it is the fruit of the, the, the corrupted Jew. I have no doubt. And Swift took it as gospel. And that one quote is only exemplary of his attitude towards the Zohar. Now, I've never read the Zohar. I've read passages. I've seen passages from the Zohar, the the, the rest of the Kabbalah, the Mishnah, the the, the, um, commentaries on the law, things like that. But I've never had time to read the entire Talmud. And I don't know if I want to fill my brain with that crap. I wouldn't do it for the sake of intellectual hygiene. You are what you eat, and that's also true of what your mind eats. You are what you read. So one would think that the one would think that the very origin of it would tell you something. I mean, it's, I, I, I I never was really. Back when I was listening to Swift regularly, I wasn't really clear as to what that um, particular book was. It was just one of those things that I never uh, stopped and went and looked into. But I have heard it mentioned more recently as being like part of the Talmud. Well, well, to me, his um, some of his nutty ideas like the other races being taken to the constellation Ara and cleansed there at, at God's will. Something which isn't scriptural at all. His ideas along those lines, to me, I can only account for them because of the things that he read and quoted and filled his mind with. And, and I look at some of the books he quoted and I look at some of these oddball statements he made, and I think to myself, well, uh, I guess he came up with these oddball statements because he's reading these perverted Jewish books. Now, I could be wrong, but that's my gut feeling. I think there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of um, um, interest in outer space stuff in popular culture. Yes, there was. And, and Swift also quoted Velikovsky. Emanuel Velikovsky was a Jew insurance agent that, that all of a sudden got an epiphany and became an astrophysicist. I mean, that's another. 
you know, source that I would never quote, and Swift did, and quoted him as an authority. I wouldn't use his books to line my birdcage. I wouldn't buy them in the first place. Christians should um, examine what, what, what they think they should read, go learn about those things and examine those things at great length, and, and, and find out the, the legitimacy of those things. And when you, even when you read something like Swift loved to quote from the books of Adam and Eve, and, and there are some books of Adam and Eve which predate Christ, and there are some which the Adam and Eve, the third book, I believe, wasn't um, written until the sixth century. That's not canon. That's not Old Testament canon by any means. I wouldn't um, quote that book as gospel. But Swift and others have done that. So, so I mean, we have to be careful about our sources. Right. Other, otherwise, we're going to be let off into a lot of um, a, a lot of rabbit holes, a lot of errors. So, what do you think after that uh, long reading? Is, is my New York accent worse than yours? Well, well, um, I, I wouldn't say worse. I think it's a little stronger. I, I have, I, I really do try to, um, try to tone mine down for these podcasts, and and sometimes it's difficult. And and um, my, my family always picks on me. Melissa's always picking on me, but but that's okay. She just teases me. Um, people say I talk funny. I don't understand it. Because where I come from, a lot of people talk like this. And they're not Jews. I, your, your website, Alan, is um, historicalrecordings.net. What have you posted there lately? I, I haven't posted anything because for some reason it's, I can't upload on it. I, I don't know why. I, I haven't been able to upload anything. And um, I, I spoke to the fellow who set it up for me. And I, I think it's just old software and... Um, you know, so I, I haven't uh, any any new recordings. Um, I, I just upload at the uh, Christogenia uh, site for uploading audios. Um, I, I have a an, I found an album of um, <coughs> excuse me, is it? Uh, I found an album of of um, like Croatian patriotic like fascist songs from World War Two which um, as soon as I get some time, I'm going to transfer and upload this. That's the most recent thing. Yeah, you've done a, a lot of good work there. You have recordings from South African politicians, the clerk, people like that, um, Wesley Swift, Bertrand Compare, probably things that are, uh, I, I don't know, I have to look. Did, did you have access to a box of Swift tapes or something? There, there was some mention of that. Well, yeah, I, myself, and a few other people from Stormfront, back when I was still posting on there, um, I, I had been, I had the opportunity to buy about 60 reel-to-reels, original reel-to-reels from Wesley Swift's ministry. So, it was a little expensive, so we all kind of chipped in and bought it, the collection. And um, I had started digitizing them and uploading them 
to my site. Um, my reel-to-reel, a part broke, and I haven't been able to replace it. Um, you know, the thing that the thing that really bugs me about it is that I knew with this machine that I had, I knew that there was a part. I didn't know exactly. I'm not um, like, an, you know, I don't know how to, like, take electric stuff apart and fix it, really. I mean, other than, like, the basic stuff. I knew that there was a part with this particular unit that um, was was known to be usually after about tw- it was a it was a cam a metal cam but it was made of something called pot metal which is kind of like the metal equivalent of press board right and um, and um, I had heard I had read that usually after about twenty years these cams disintegrate well this machine was already forty years old and it was working fine and I you know. I never really bothered to try to find out um, what 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 this part was, and I, I'm kicking myself repeatedly for not doing that because when it eventually did disintegrate and I took it apart, it was something that was right behind the faceplate. It was something that, if I had bothered to find out what exactly it was, looked for it, I could have removed it, taken it to a machine shop had the machine me a new piece and uh, you know but I didn't do that it, it disintegrated stupid me uh, so transferring those tapes was put on hold for a while recently um, I started looking for another reel to reel saw one on eBay uh, got, had a good feeling about the way that the seller advertised his stuff uh, and then it turns out someone who I speak to on a regular basis on a music forum knew the guy and said, oh, yeah, you know, that's, you know, um, it didn't work out. Now, I don't know what, you know, I, I don't think the guy, like, he didn't screw me. I think the guy really is an honest seller. I just think for some reason it just didn't work out because I bought the machine, he shipped it here, there was a problem with it, he paid to have it shipped back to be fixed. And then shipped it to me again, and it broke again, and eventually I had to just ship it back and get my money back. So, um, I'm currently speaking with someone who uh, rebuilds Crown reel-to-reels. Crown was actually an electronics company started by a Christian minister uh, for the purpose of... um, um, uh, you know, with you know, missionary tapes and stuff. So um, he has a player. It's just a basic player. Uh, that, but this one, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's 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 the type of electronic equipment that's not encased in a cabinet, and that's what he doesn't have is the cabinet. So he's trying to find the cabinet, and uh, if he does, then. He's going to do a rebuild, and it's, it's only going to cost me not much because it's just a basic player. It doesn't record or anything like that. So uh, hopefully when I get another reel-to-reel, then I can get back to truck. Because I have a lot of Swift tapes that are not online. Uh, for example, these Friday night world events meetings. Um, I have some of those. So, you know, I'm trying to uh, get them machine that I need to transfer them. 
Well, God willing, you'll be able to do that. To do that. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's uh, even though I disagree with a lot of what Swift taught, I, I, I respect his work and I appreciate his work. That's why I have a Swift website. And and the same thing with Bertrand Capere. And and um, the the works are worthy of preservation. There's no doubt. So, so yeah, um, absolutely. It, it's Wesley Swift tapes, Bertrand Comparé tapes. They're they're valuable, and and um, if the, some of the ones that I host are of very poor quality, I can't even stand to listen to them for more than five or ten minutes. And, yeah, and um, that's, to that's get true. better tape, better tapes would indeed be a blessing. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, one of the things that's interesting about the Friday Night World events tapes. Um, it's got, it, you, you get a really good, uh, you, you get a much clearer picture of what was going on in the 60s. That, then we did from Walter Cronkite. Yeah, I'm, I'm always, sure. I, I'm always like, um, I'm, I'm always hearing, uh, different things, events that, that he speaks about that I've never heard of. And then I go online and look these things up, you know. A lot of uh, interesting. It, it definitely uh, because, it, like I said, the last time I called in, in regards to those other recordings by that Wally Butterworth fellow, they really paint a very accurate picture, a much clearer picture of a very, very politicized and propagandized decade. And you have a lot of um, Wally Butterworth tapes at historicalrecordings.net, right? I recently, I, yeah, I recently, I recently found some more. But you know, I'm, the mistake I made with that was that I bought them. I bought them online, and um, the guy told me he had more. And I, as soon as I got them. I cleaned them up, I digitized them, and I put them right online. And then suddenly, the guy didn't claim he doesn't have any more. I think what he did, well, I think what the guy did was, I think that he searched, you know, uh, online, and then saw how I was using the recordings. Right. Or even what the, I, I'm not even sure he knew what the recordings were. But I think that he went and searched online and made what is in his mind a moral decision not to sell me the rest of them. That's because he he told me he had more, and then and 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 that was it. And in fact, he didn't. He stopped answering my emails. The last time I spoke to him, he told me that he was going to the place where he he has like all this you know antique stuff and that he was going to get the other ones, and that he would get back to me on Sunday with the titles, you know. And he just never got back to me and never answered my emails again. That sounds like he made an immoral decision. Right, <laughs> an immoral decision not to, um, not to, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I first found, I first found one of, I, I found one of those Wally Butterworth records at a record convention many years ago. This guy had a box of uh, miscellaneous albums, 
you know, and I saw this record and I, I pulled it out. It had no cover, and it said, um, uh, what was the one, the first one? So it was something about the Jews, you know. <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, um, well, what is this? And the seller, he just said, oh, my God. I said, what? He goes, and then he just said, oh, he was like, you know, there's people who collect records, right? And they might not necessarily be interested in the content for the same reason that other people would be interested in. Right. There's people, there's people who collect weird records, quote-unquote weird records, just because they're weird, you know? So this guy was going on about what a great, weird record this is. And how this guy is just insane, crazy, you know, and, and he thinks he's, he's trying to sell the record to me as, oh, you know, you, you must be one of those guys that collects these weird eccentric records, right? Usually, there's, there's websites where people uh, that collect these type of records talk about them, but it's like, they're like a joke, you know? So I'm listening, and uh, he's going on and on about this record. So uh, he wanted like 20 bucks for it. It was the last day of a, of a three-day convention. So I offered him $10 for it. And uh, he agreed, and I bought it. Oh, no, I know what it was. He, he wanted $20 for it. I offered him $10, and this is what he says to me. He says, well, I'll give it to you for $10, as long as you make a $10 donation to the Anti-Defamation League. And... I'm not a good liar, you know? <laughs> right. I, looked at him and so I, I, I just looked. I said, well, I'm sorry, sir. I can't do that. I, I, I can't. If that's part of the agreement, then, then I'm sorry. I, I can't do that. And the guy's whole, his whole demeanor changed. He, he, in that moment, realized, this guy is buying this record because he, he agrees with this type of thinking. Right. And, 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 and his whole demeanor changed. Now, what's funny is that the reason that I was there on Sunday, I, I hadn't, it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday convention, and I hadn't planned to go on Sunday. And Saturday night when I got home, I was on a website looking at pictures from that day's events. And in one of the pictures, I saw the back of a seller's display, and there was a picture disc with a swastika on it. And I thought, I didn't see that. I wonder what that is. <laughs> so I went back I went back the next day and what it, and I bought it actually. What it was was it was a one of the very first picture discs ever made was what what one of the first places where picture discs were made was in Third Reich Germany. And they used to make these uh, seventy eight picture discs. And there's one of Hitler, and it's, it's very valuable. And basically what this was at the record show was a reproduction. It was a reproduction of the original. And so I bought it, you know. So I had the Hitler picture disc in my bag when I was talking with this seller over the Wally Butterworth record. And like I said, when, when, when I saw the light go off, you know, <laughs> and his whole attitude changed. So I quickly gave the guy the ten dollars. I grabbed the Bobby Butterworth record, and then I made it a point when I opened my bag, 
of pulling the Hitler picture disc out <laughs> so he could see it and then putting the Wally Butterworth record next to it and sliding them back into my bag. The look on this guy's face was priceless. It was absolutely priceless. Is it amazing that the Jew would know the content of the record and, and, and despise it to that degree and still wish to sell it? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yes. His yes. real God is the dollar. Yep. Yeah, well, like I said, like the guy that I bought these recent ones from, he had no... I, I don't know if he had a record player... It, it, I mean, I mean, you can kind of tell from reading just what's on the labels, you know. But um, yeah, he had no problem selling them. But then, well, I guess when he saw what they were, uh, then he wasn't making any more available to them. Somebody in the in, in the talk show chat is offering to um, make your part. That real, real to real. If you have anything left of it, um, unfortunately, it's in pieces. It's like dust. It's a couple of chunks and, and some dust. But I actually do have. Um, I, I have a, a, a photograph. Maybe I don't know. Um, I guess you'd need dimensions. I, I have a photograph of what the part looks like. Maybe, maybe we can. Uh, that, that's the chat on Christogenia or the talk show chat? That's the talk show chat, Titus 114. All right, I'll have to... Um, who, who, maybe someone could um, email me at bigalstack at hotmail.com, the person that's B-I-G-A-L-S-T-A-C-K at hotmail.com. If the person wants to email me, we can uh, discuss it. I can send them the picture. Okay, hopefully Titus heard that offer, and, and maybe, um, you never know, some, 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 it, some uh, It would be nice, I, I just had, the, I had just had the machine repaired, I, I had sent, and, and actually I'm, I'm wondering if that wasn't from, from it being taken apart to fix something else, I had just had the machine repaired, and uh, was working great, and then that part disintegrated. Um, I, I've wondered if from taking the machine apart to fix something else, something wasn't knocked or jostled or something, and that's what made it. I mean, of course, that's not, you know, the technician's fault. Um, but uh, it, it would be great if I could just... Uh, um, it's just a little, like, V-shaped piece of metal with a, with a, a screw, a, 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 you know, a hole where a screw would go in. I just wish I had taken it out. I wish I had been a little more... I had looked into it because it really was very easy to get to. It was right behind the faceplate. And it's a shame because one stupid little part, and, and, and it's now basically a boat anchor. Well, that's, that, that's the way it is. That's all that old equipment. How many... Um Great old radio sets have been lost for a couple of tubes or one tube. That that's um when when we don't make that stuff anymore, right? Well, they don't make stuff like they used to. I, I was I was on a website um, that I go on sometimes, an audio website, and a guy had dug uh, a very rare amplifier, 
out of the ground at a site where this house burnt down like 25 years ago. And this amplifier has been sitting outside on this property where this house burnt down for 25 years. And he brought it back to life. <laughs> he had pictures. He had to see this thing. It was. I mean, forget about it. But but this guy, and he didn't really even have to do that much to it, and brought it back to life. Twenty-five years sitting out. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's that, that's amazing. And nowadays, you know, you buy something, and you know, it's 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 designed to last what you know, a couple three years, and then. And most of the stuff that you buy today is really should just be tossed in the garbage anyway. It's right, not even worth repairing. It's garbage. It, it's a um, at everything that they sell to consumers. They sell for the for the that the idea with the idea that it's going to be replaced very quickly. It, it's a disposable society. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a, a sign of a sick society when nothing invested in can be repaired. It, I, I don't know how much broken stuff we had the last five years that can't be fixed. Electronic yeah, I, 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 I would still have, I am absolutely certain, I would still have the VCR that I bought in 1982. If not for the fact that when I went when I moved to Europe and I shipped it, the box got destroyed in transit. I had that machine since 1982, and at the time I left the United States in 1998, I had only had I had to do a, one repair on it, and it was just because I used it a lot. I mean, I was you know at one time back in the 80s, I was using multiple VCRs. I used to trade rare music videos with people. So my VCRs were running all the time, and um, but yeah, that thing was it was incredible. In fact, the the guy who did the one time that I had to take it in to get the transport repaired, uh, the fellow who did the work, who had been doing work for my family for years, had told me that that VCR, that that VCR was made on at at. at, at in terms of uh, the quality of the build, on the same level as professional pneumatic uh, video decks, like semi-professional video decks they use in TV industry, and uh, and I, I I I I'm sure it would still be working today. But uh, when I mailed it when I mailed it abroad, it didn't make it. It, it was completely destroyed when I got it. Well, hopefully you'll Yahweh willing. You'll have a reel-to-reel deck that works soon, and and we will be able to hear those swift tapes. Amen. Thank you for the call, right, Alan, and and um, I appreciate it, and and I'm sure the listeners did also. And and your website is historicalrecordings.net. There's quite a few yeah, interesting like I, things there. Like I said, I'm not sure what's you know. I I did notice, like I'm looking on the chat here. I think somebody mentioned a minute or two ago. Uh, they were having problems with it. I, I don't know what's going on with that site. Um, I mean, what's on there is there, and um, my understanding is that the software is is outdated. So, um, you know, I, I well, I think we spoke about that, and I think it's on my um, 
my project was to maybe perhaps make you a better one. We could talk about that, or or I mean, even I mean, it's it's fine. <coughs> Excuse me. Just uploading the audios on the uh, Christogenia file sharing website so people can download them. I mean, that's that's fine. People don't need to look at necessarily a picture while they're listening to it, which is all that the other site really offers. Um, in addition to that, but uh, okay. All right, Phil. Good night. Thank you, Alan. And, nope. and good Yahweh night. Bless. Yahweh bless. Thanks for calling. Take care. Bye bye. Me one. Hello. Guest twenty one. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Bill? Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll just get straight to the point. Okay. So to lay the basis of what I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you some questions that I already know you know the answer to. Do you believe that Yahweh God himself could be tempted? Can Yahweh God himself be tempted? Tempted with what? I mean, the scriptures, he admits that he's tempted, right? Well, where does it say that? That the children of Israel tempted to... to um, I mean, if him. I was to make a bet with Yahweh, if I was to tell Yahweh, well, I'll bet you this, this, and that, well, I mean, would he accept such an offer? No, absolutely not. Well, men okay. attempt, men attempt no. to tempt God, right? That doesn't mean that God falls for the temptation. God cannot be tempted in that sense. Okay, do you believe that angels or Satan himself could tempt God? Can Satan himself tempt God? Correct. Like, like I just said, we can all attempt to tempt God. That doesn't mean God's going to fall for the temptation, right? That's the way I Correct, look at it. But, I, but I, I disagree with you. I mean, in the book of Job, you have practically, I mean, and I'm just going to paraphrase here because I don't know the book of Job completely by heart. But essentially, you had... You know, you had Job, which praised Yahweh, and you know he created, he, uh, you know, he blessed his life, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, Satan pretty much came out and said, "Well, the only reason he praises you, Yahweh, is because you know you bless his life." Right. And then you know, essentially, Yahweh said, "Oh yeah," and then he brought the curses upon Job. So, I mean, that essentially is temptation. So, so why do we have that book? It, is there a greater reason for for, for well, because, um, it, because it happened? Job's trials. Job's yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, Job's trials. I mean, they happened, but you know, Satan told Yahweh, "Well, the only reason he does this is because you do this." And Yahweh said, "Oh yeah," and then you know that's when he killed his family. He put the swords on his body, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, Yahweh was tempted right there. No, no Yahweh didn't. Do 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 the um, the destruction to Job. His permissive will allowed his enemies to destroy Job, right? His family, his property. Well, yeah, that's that's the vehicle in which Yahweh, you know, did what he did to Job. But I mean, you know, it, it happened because he allowed it. Because I mean, I mean, doesn't Yahweh allow everything? God, God has divine will. That right? there's the divine will of God, and there's the permissive will of God. And and uh -huh. 
God knew that Job would pass the test. Otherwise, he's not God. If Yahweh did not know that Job would pass the test and, and that Satan would fail, then he's not God. But why would he bring, you know, such test, you know, such, such, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, such, uh, excuse me for a second, such, such grief, okay, such grief to, you know, a guy that loved and worshiped him to prove a point, you know, to literally the most evil entity on earth. Well, in, in the universe, which would be Satan. But why, that's why, why what I believe. That? That's Considering what he already knew happened. That is what I believe is the deeper spiritual reason for the existence of the trial of Job and, and for that book surviving to us. It is so that we do understand that this life the things in this life are temporal and, and the, the reward in the next life is much greater especially if we love and respect our God in this life Job all of those temporal things that he lost are nothing compared to the reward which comes to those who love God and, and that's paraphrasing Paul right well, Job never did curse God. So his Correct. reward in the end was much greater than everything which he lost. We assign too much value to this life, and we should assign no value to this life and glorify God. But essentially, God. Yahweh was tempted, though. I mean, none of, none, none of what Yahweh did would have happened unless Satan would have said what he said to Yahweh. I mean, essentially, it, 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 was, a, it, was, a, it was pretty much Yahweh saying, oh, yeah, and he did what he did. Well, well, the way I look at it is if you want to believe that Yahweh God was tempted and, and that he fell for that temptation, that implies that God can sin, and, and you're failing the test of Job. That's the way I look at it. Well, I, okay, I, I see where you're coming from, but I mean, you know, you know, based off of what I what I could read, you know, which you know, the Bible is the word of God, right? That's correct, right? Everything that Yahweh, you know, the Bible, that's that's the word of God that we have here on earth, you know. But that's in the divine you know, will of God, there's only one. In the divine will of God, there's only one ultimate outcome. Right. And, yeah, and, you know, he's the, he's the Alpha, he's the Omega. He knows everything from beginning to end. I mean, so he would have known what happened to Job from beginning to end. But then again, I mean, that doesn't change the fact that, you know, the most evil entity, you know, ever to exist, you know. You know, he practically brought all this grief to this man, you know, for what? But, but you're assigning too much value to the grief. Because the for what is for the glory of God. Because in the end, Job was um, repaid many times over for, for, his, for, for what he had lost. And the lives of his children, are, are, are the lives of all Christians, uh, Christians are accounted as nothing. Aren't we sheep for the slaughter? We assign too much value to our lives. Oh, those poor children, they suffered so badly. But all the suffering in this world, in this life, is so that men can learn what sin is. And I just discussed that at great length in my Romans presentation. And 
everything that happens to us that befalls men in this life is to the glory of God. Because if we're Christians, we should know that no matter what befalls us in this life, what we um, have a much greater existence in a life to come. The things we should account this life is nothing. And, and that's the, um, the, the, the underlying moral lesson in the story of Job. Job could have cursed God. God, why did you let this happen to me? How do I deserve this? But he didn't. Most men today would. Most men today, when, when, when calamity befalls them, that they're putting the blame on God. Okay, but I they mean, tell the I test mean pretty much what I'm getting at, you know, for everything is that, you know, everything that happened was triggered to Satan telling Yahweh something and then him practically taking Satan up on his bed. But you're insisting that God being tempted is fallible. God is not fallible. Yahweh is not fallible. But I mean, okay, okay. If, if, if I say to you, hey, Bill, you know, I bet you twenty dollars. You know, you can't jump over that. You know, that gap in the street. You know, and then you know you go and you do it. I mean, wouldn't you say that that's me tempting you? No, because my own lust for your twenty dollars tempted me. That's the Apostle James. And go read the. Go read James's epistle. Go read James's epistle. James' epistle? Yes, where he says that God tempts no one. But but each man is tempted by his own lust. If you want to bet me $20 that I could do something, why am I doing it? Because I lost No, no, that, that, was just, that was just an example I'm saying. Because, you know, just like, just how Satan told Yahweh, you know, oh, the only reason he worships you is because you bless him so greatly. And then Yahweh brought the hardships to him, and, you know, his children died. He got sores on his body, you know. You know, fire came from the sky and destroyed everything he had, etc., etc. I mean, it was Satan's words which caused Yahweh to do what it is that he did to Job. No, Yahweh allowed Satan to do what he wanted to Job. Oh, what was that? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Yahweh allowed Satan to do what Satan wanted to Job, except to take his life. That's what it says. Okay, so you're saying... So you're suggesting that Satan thought that, oh, you know, if he gets sores on his body, if you, you know, kill his kids and do this, this, and that, he's not going to love you anymore. And then, you know, when the outcome came, which was, you know, essentially once everything was over, that you know, he would still love, you know, Yahweh. Doesn't, doesn't Yahweh, I'm sorry, doesn't Yahweh allow Satan to do whatever he wants to many of the children of Israel? all throughout time. Does, isn't he doing that now? Every time a white woman gets raped by a nigger, isn't that Yahweh's permissive will allowing that to happen? I understand, but... So, so you're going... You're going... You, you want to blame God for that sin, don't you? The sin is God's fault, right? repeat that? I'm getting horrible reception. You want to blame God for that sin, don't you? Because that's your basic attitude. No, no, that, no, That's no, what it seems like to not, me. That's not my basic attitude. I mean, I'm reading something, and, you know, what I'm reading is that, you know, Satan says this to Yahweh, and then say, and then Yahweh acts upon, you know, Satan's words, which are, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to mess his life up 
you know, I'm going to kill his kids, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I'm going to see what happens, even though y'all already knew what happened. Yeah, but the, 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 the Satan-Job scenario is played out again and again and again all throughout history. It's being played out in, in tens of thousands of places right now. Correct. But you agree that he was tempted. Yahweh himself, you know, Alpha the Omega, the creator of the universe, was tempted by the devil. No, I don't see it that way. I don't see it the way you do. I mean, just based off of what you're, re just like, you know, read the book of Job, and I mean, you know, what conclusion could you come to other than Yahweh himself was tempted by Satan? What, what conclusion I can come to is that there's God's divine will and God's permissive will. In God's permissive will, men are tormented by God's enemies, and, and that's the trials and tribulations that we're told that men would have right. in, in, in this existence. And, and, and for the record, Bill, I'm not trying to I'm not I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm not trying to, you know, get on your nerves or anything, but I'm I'm just saying that that in in that in that sense, you know, where it happened, you know, between Job and, you know, him getting his family killed, etc., it was because of what Satan said, because if Satan would have never said what he said to Yahweh I mean, it would have. I mean, it would have never happened. I mean, not, I mean, it was pretty much, you know, the most evil entity in the universe that said what he said to Yahweh, which you know, in turn caused what happened to happen to Job. Now, I think, I think what caused what the reason why that happened to Job is so that we, so, so that we can see. How to act so, and, and how an we example, should uphold ourselves and sustain ourselves during times of trial. Uh, because it's happening so, to, to to practically all of us at one time or another. Oh, believe me, I know. <laughs> believe me, I know. I got thousands of dollars in lawyer fees to prove that. <laughs> so, but, so I, I see Job. That that's an example of, of the the trial that men befall in this in, in this life. That's the reason for our existence is to know what okay. to learn what sin is. That's the reason for this temporal existence is to learn what sin is. Romans chapter I mean, six I think, and seven. I think that just by Yahweh saying, you know, race mixing, you know, homosexuality, you know, just you know, stuff like that, I mean, myself, you know, instinctively, you know, since I was a young child, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a very, 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 very liberal household. You know, I, I was old, and, you know, like everybody, you know, judge people based on what they say, you know, their character, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I always, I always, in my heart, I knew it was wrong. Like, I always knew it was wrong. You know, and... And with that said, I mean, you know, couldn't Yahweh have just said, hey, you know, you know, this is wrong and you'll know it's wrong, but, you know, why? I mean, it's it just, what I can't get over is the but fact that's the, that Satan right. said something and Yahweh acted upon it. I mean, the fact that, you know, Satan said something and Yahweh, you know, essentially, you know. No, you know no. Yahweh had Satan nothing to gain from it. And then Yahweh said, how high? Yeah, Yahweh had nothing to gain from it. He, he wasn't tempted in that sense. God cannot be rewarded. And God cannot lose because he knows all the outcomes. So, so the, those, 
the aspects of temptation aren't there. They're not there. Well, well. So we well, have to look guess, for. Well, we have to look to another reason. Because I mean, he could. I mean, pretty much. I mean, what else does that you know infer to? That I mean, me, myself, and you can't be a hypocrite. For example, you know, we could be hypocrites. You know, anyone else could be a hypocrite. But Yahweh's pretty much like, oh well, you know, it's okay this one time because I'm Yahweh God. I can do whatever the hell I want. No, no, it's not. It's it's exemplary of many times. The story of Job is exemplary of, of tens of thousands of scenarios that have, well, that well, have I occurred. I, I didn't get that. The story of Job is exemplary of, of an unlimited number of instances in, in which bad things have happened to good men or, or to what we perceive as good men. Mm-hmm. It happens over and over again. So, so it's not one instance. It's only that that one instance was recorded as a lesson for us. But for God to be tempted, God has to seek a reward for that temptation. And, and well, I mean, the reward, the reward the, of being right, the, the, the reward pro- of you know, no, no. of God being is able always to tell right. Satan, I mean, to prove a point to Satan, you know, like for example, you get in an argument with your friend, you know, and you tell them like, you know. You know, but there's no you know, sense. It's red, not blue. It's red, not blue. And then, you know, at the end of it, you prove that it's red and you make your friend feel like a retard. You know what I mean? That, there's no sense in proving... There's no sense in proving the point to Satan. Christ told, Christ told Satan, he told his enemies again and again, that they weren't going to understand what he said. He can't prove a point to them. They don't matter except to... To, to um, so, so so that he can show his will to his children, to men. That's the only reason why they matter. I mean, it's just the way I'm reading. I mean, the way that I mean, just the words that are before my eyes, which are quote unquote the words of God Himself. But that Satan Would didn't you, didn't mean, lose the bet. That, okay, let's say. Let's say if you read you read it for the first time, I mean, wouldn't you agree that when you read that, it would be essentially Yahweh taking Satan up on a bet? That yes might be no? the superficial way to look at it, but to me, that's the superficial way to look at it. But I mean, yeah, but I mean, that's what ultimately transpired from Satan saying what he said, and then Yahweh doing what he did. I mean, that's I mean, you know, actions speak louder than words, right? What ultimately trans- transpired it is that Yahweh knew that Job was not going to curse him with his mouth. And for that reason, allowed Satan to torment Job. But Job passed the test. Today, a lot of people in Christian identity fail that test. Okay, so how do you take, okay, so how do you take what Satan said? I mean, what do you consider that then? Let me hear a quote. Hello? Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, so, I mean, how do you how do you take into account what Satan said? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Satan, he said, he said this, this, and that, 
you know, they won't like you if you don't bless them. And Yahweh said, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean the words are there. Oh, yeah? I mean, it says, oh, yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what it, I mean, essentially, that's what it was. I mean, I mean, what else was it other than, like, oh, I mean, Satan said, oh, he's like, you know, he, 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 uh, he praises you because you blessed him. What happened? Yahweh brought the curses upon Job. I mean, I'm kind of beat around the bush. I mean, I mean, believe me, I've been listening to you for you know over a year. I've been studying CI for over what maybe six years now. I mean, I've done my homework, but you know, this is I mean, this is I guess what you would call stumbling block for me. Well, well, that's good, but I see a I see the reason for the Book of Job being the greater spiritual lesson that it had to be played out in some way in order to convey that lesson. And it's not that God was going to win a bet, because God can't be tempted. You can't tempt a man that knows the outcome, and you can't tempt a man that cannot be rewarded. You can't tempt me. If, if, if I have all the money in the world, you can't tempt me with $20. If I know the outcome, you can't tempt me at all. If so I know the outcome is that so I'm going words, to fail, if I know the order, outcome is that, that I'm going to fail, then I'm not going to take your bet. It's that simple. If I know that the outcome is that I'm going to, to, to pass, then I'm going to tell you to go beat your head against the wall. Okay, come on. Let's do it. Because I know I'm going to be able to do this. Because I'm, I'm God. Well, Yahweh could say, I'm God. I know that Job's not going to curse me. So you could go and torment him any way you want. He won't curse me. Now, in the end, is the lesson for you for, or, or for Satan? Or is the, is the lesson for Job and other people who can read that story and understand it? Because today in Christian identity, the way I see it, we have a lot of people. James Brueggemann, that, that clown from... Stone, stone, stoned ministry. I forget what it's named. He teaches that. <laughs> people's ministry. He, he teaches that God is responsible for all the sin in the world, and to me, he fails the test of Job. That's why we see this test of Job. There's a greater spiritual reason. God cannot be tempted. James one thirteen. God cannot be okay. tempted with evil. If God knows the outcome... I agree with you. You know, Yahweh cannot be tempted. So would you say that this would be an instance of, you know, your ways are not of my ways? Well, well, it could be an instance of that, but to me that that greater moral lesson is more important than the actual mechanics of what happened. I mean, I, I guess, you know, through my, you know, my fleshly perspective, you know, I guess that's the best way I could put it. I mean, it just looks like, you know, Satan made a bet, and Yahweh said, you know, you're on. And then he, you know, he brought all these, you know, hardships to Job. I mean, that's, I mean... It, it would only be, it, it could only be, cla- it, it, to me, in, in my perspective, it can only, only be called temptation if Yahweh was not sure of the outcome. That's Okay. I mean, it's just, aside from the book of Job, and I mean, all I could do is paraphrase. I mean, I have another example. I, I forgot who it was. I mean, I'm sure you'll know right off the bat, but 
you know, two two sons went into a they went into a village and they you know they slaughtered all the Canaanites because one of them raped their sister. You know what I'm talking about? Of course I do. Simeon okay. and Levi. And okay, and didn't one of them marry a Canaanite and have you know three kids with her? Yeah, you know the the I discussed this on a podcast. I don't remember how long ago. Simeon is said to have married a Canaanite. A Canaanite woman, but but he was never chastised for that. He was never criticized for that anywhere in Scripture. And because of that, I believe that there's elements of that story that we don't have. That's my belief. Okay, so you believe that that's like a piece of parchment that was, you know, probably destroyed by you know some Jew rabbi during you know the Roman Empire or whatever. It is. No, I believe that the word Canaanite had become synonymous with merchant at the time. That doesn't mean all merchants were Canaanites. I believe that it's possible that Canaanite may have been a geographical distinction, and it was at that time, but that doesn't mean that all the the people that lived in the land of Canaan were Canaanites by blood. I'm not making excuses for Simeon, but Judah married a Canaanite woman, and it was singled out Judah. as being wrong, and Judah was made an example. But And Esau married Canaanite women, and it was singled out as being wrong, and Esau was made an even greater example than Judah, because Esau never found mercy in the eyes of God where Judah did. Judah found mercy not on account of himself, but on account of the promises to Jacob. So Tamar came along, and and Judah impregnated her, and for that reason, we have legitimate descendants of Judah. Otherwise, we wouldn't, right? So Judah found mercy in the eyes of God. Where Simeon, it does say that he married a Canaanite woman, but... There's never any um, condemnation of that for him in Scripture, and, and there's never any um, a, a, any explicit statement that his marriage was wrong. So, so that okay. leads so me just, to... So bo- just how the lack of information, right. in that instance, it's the same in how... You know, anyone that just picks up the book of Job and reads it would, you know, wouldn't be able to, you know, decipher, you know, why did Yahweh, you know, essentially take a bet from Satan. Well, well, that's true. If you you only want to read Job and not read the rest of Scripture and 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 oh no no, but I mean it's, it's along the same lines. I mean, you know, the fact is, you know, Judah, you know, he screwed a Canaanite woman. You know, it's like. You know, if I go out and I screw Sarah Silverman and I have, you know, two kids with her... Oh, please, don't put that image in my head. (laughs) And then, you know, and then Yahweh, you know, doesn't say anything about it. I mean, you know, I mean, Yahweh should have, you know, he should have freaking, you know, he should have sent a lightning bolt and he should have killed Judah right then and there. You know, for being a filthy piece of garbage, I mean, you know... That that's God's that that too is an example of God's permissive will and God's divine will. Compare Judah and Esau. The promises were passed down to Jacob. That's the divine will of God. Esau marries Canaanite women, and even when he finds out that he it was wrong for him to marry Canaanites. And and that's in the, the Genesis account. He goes out and finds an Ishmaelite woman. Esau, Ishmael was already excluded from the covenants. 
Esau, even yeah, when he realized, Arabs, right? even when, well, well, the father of some of the Arabs, and, and, and okay. all the Arabs are mixed. It, it, let's put it this way. Ishmael was never the, 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 um, the father, the purposeful father of an Arab, right? Because an Arab is mixed. The, the, um, the Edomites and the Ishmaelites mingled later on, and they mingled with a lot of other races as well. So that the, um, the point I'm trying to make is that Esau, even though he... So he saw that he did something that did displease his parents and his Hittite wives. He couldn't rectify it by going to find out what the will of his father was. Who should I marry, Dad? What he did was he decided on his own, and that's the way Scripture portrays it, to go get an Ishmaelite wife. And that was still not good enough. He could never recover the, the, the birthright. Where Judah... Judah's sin was the same as Esau's. He went out and got a Canaanite wife, had three children with her. He, he was um, criticized for it explicitly in, in Malachi and, and other scriptures. Well, well, Judah, he found grace in the eyes of God and, and, and bore legitimate children through Tamar. But that wasn't on account of Judah. That was on account of the promises that Yahweh made to Jacob. And and that's what we should recognize in the difference between um, Judah and Esau was that Judah found grace in the eyes of God on account of the promises Yahweh made to Jacob. Okay. I mean, all, all I could get from that is that, you know, Yahweh's ways and out of our ways. You know, maybe he used, you know, Judah, he used Job, you know, I guess you could say, you know, as a sacrificial lamb. But I mean, I mean that's really all I could say about that. Well, well, I mean, today, I, yeah, you know, I mean, but you could understand, though, right? I mean, you could understand. Well, well, if you want to understand the Book of Job in isolation, but but I I, I can't understand it in isolation from all these other scriptures. There has to be a greater moral reason, and and if God knows the outcome. I don't believe he can be tempted. And and where scripture tells us he can't be tempted. James chapter 1. If he knows the outcome, if he's absolutely sure of the outcome, and, and if he doesn't know the outcome, then he's not God. That's the way I see it. Thank you for your call. It, it's um, uh, I mean, it's a legitimate question. There's no doubt. Do you have anything else? Guest twenty two. Guest 22. Guest 22, hello. No, I guess, I guess not. 
people in talk show are complaining they've lost sound. Try guess 22 again. No, he's hung up. Okay, we're out of callers. I guess I'm going to be out of program. I don't have a whole lot more to speak about. I'll be returning to the Romans series next week. Romans chapter 11. Broken Branches. We're going to do call-ins again tomorrow night. Hold it. I have a Skype call. I'm going to answer Sven Longshanks. Hello. Hello, Bill. It's uh, Sven here. And I'll just turn the radio off. Sven, in order for me to get you on talk show, I have to call you so I could do that momentarily. Okay. I, it's, it's a quick question. It was about um, the Moses' father-in-law that married a Kenite. Judges chapter 1, verse 16. I wonder if you could explain that, if it's not too much to ask. Okay. I'm going to have to hang up in order for the talk show people to hear me, though. Okay, that's cool. Thank you, sir. I'm sorry, talk show. I received a Skype call, and I really can't add an incoming call to my call with talk show. We're going to try to um, add Sven Longshanks to this call. Hello. Hello, Sven. Hello, Bill. We should be heard on talk show now. You have a question okay. about Moses' father-in-law. Yeah, I, I had a, a question about Moses' father-in-law. I was just looking through the other day. I was trying to um, trace the Cain bloodline right the way through, and I, I was looking up the Kenites, got to that point, and just looking up where the Kenites here in the Bible and it's just in Judges chapter 1 verse 16 and it said that Moses' father-in-law was a Canite so I thought maybe you could um, well I'd ask him maybe you could um, answer that one for me because you know why well <clears throat> I can't really see Moses marrying a Canite and um or maybe he did marry marry a Kenite, and the the children were never mentioned again. But, um, it's just something that um, I, I'm just not too aware of. In in scripture, we see that um, Moses' father-in-law is called a Midianite, and he's a man of the tribe of Midian, and the Midianites were descendants of Abraham through Midian, his son that he had with his wife Keturah. 
Now, some of the passages in, in, in Judges are unclear. But in Judges 4.11, it says, Now, Heber the Kenite, who was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites. Now, that tells us that Heber the Kenite was a descendant of the father-in-law of Moses, but that doesn't make the father-in-law of Moses a Kenite, necessarily. Right? If he's a Midianite, then he can't be a Kenite by race. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a Midianite by race. So that word Kenite in Judges has to mean something else. Now, the word Kenite can also mean Smith. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the tribe. I don't, I don't think, you know, I think it raises a lot of questions what, what Jethro was. But Jethro was of the tribe of Midian. And, and he was a priest of Midian. So I don't know how he could be a Kenite and a Midianite at the same time. I don't know how he could be acceptable to God if he was a Kenite. But the scripture says first that he was a Midianite. And that's in Exodus chapter 3. All right, well, Exodus chapter 18. And it's clear to me that he was a Midianite. So, so can I... That those passages in, in, in Judges, which are a much later book are kind of um, ambiguous if we read Judges one sixteen and the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. So, so the, the reference, that, that, that's kind of an odd reference that the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law was not called a Kenite anywhere else in Scripture, even though Hobab a descendant of his is called a Kenite in Judges 4.11. So that reference in Judges 1.16, I don't know if I could trust by itself when the earlier books call him a Midianite. Now that's what I thought, he was a, he was a Midianite. Well, that was where the confusion came in. Well, that uh, yeah, that makes makes sense, especially if there's two or three other references that clearly say that he was a Midianite. Obviously, it does mean merchant and and metal worker as well. In in um, Judges chapter five, we see that. The wife, J.L., the wife of Heber the Kenite, it is pronounced blessed for, for what she had done in, in um, and that's in the Song of Deborah, I believe, in Judges 5.24. So, so that word Kenite, it can also simply mean smith. It doesn't have to be the, of the descendants of Cain in these chapters. It could have another meaning. In, in these verses. I, I think it, it, it warrants investigation. I don't know if we can, if we have enough material to investigate it. But 
Moses' father-in-law was clearly a Midianite and a priest of Midian. And that's what he's called in Exodus. Right. Yes, that's what I remembered. I didn't remember anything about this, this Kenite bit. I just remembered the um, Midianite bit. Now, now sometimes it's confused that Moses' father-in-law is Heber the Kenite, but that's not what Judges 4.11 is saying. Judges 4.11 is referencing Heber the Kenite, who was of the children of Moses' father-in-law. In other words, he was a descendant of Moses' father-in-law, Heber the Kenite. That doesn't mean that Moses... Moses' father-in-law was Heber the Kenite. That, that's confusing, the way the passage is worded. Right. Have we got time for, for another question? Do we have time for another question? Sure. It, it was about the, um, the Shelahites and uh, what, where I would sort of find them looking to in, in the, the Shelahites, the way I see it, where Jeremiah chapter 24 split the inhabitants of, of Judah and Jerusalem into two groups, good figs and bad figs, the Shelahites would have to be placed in with the bad figs. They're not really mentioned after the books of Kings and Chronicles that I can remember in Scripture, we're told that they were um, we're told that they were living in Netaim and and Gadara in in the book of Chronicles, so that, and and in the book of Kings, I believe. So they're still extant in the kingdom period. It, if I had to lump them in with good figs or bad figs, we understand in, in the book of Jeremiah and, and the book of Ezekiel that there are a lot of mixed people in, in Judah. I would have to put the Shelahites in that category. I understand that um, a lot of the British Israel people claim that the Shelahites went to Ireland, and, and that's just a fantasy. That's not true at all. The, the Shelahites would definitely be, would have to be placed into the category of bad figs. Do we know what happened to them after the kingdom period? No, they really can't be traced historically. I think the idea that they went to Ireland is just based on a similarity, I think, with a type of weaving that's similar to something in Egypt. I was reading about it the other day and I, I thought that just seemed like a, a very weak reason for suggesting that the Irish were the Shelahites. So that might be the origin of the British as well. But something to do with the weaving or the, the way that they made their clothes was similar. But that, that was all it was. I really thought that the... Um the British Israel fairy tale that the Shelahites went to Ireland was what was an effort to legitimize the British Empire's oppression of the Irish. Yeah, it, might, it might be that's the same way. The same way that they legitimized British bellicosity. 
towards the Germans by labeling them as the Assyrians. That's what British Israel did. Right. So, so uh, I think that the connections between um, Ur or, or, or the older brother of Shalah and, and, and Iri or, or the Irish people are a British Israel fantasy. And those people really cannot be traced in, in history further than the Bible traces them. But because a lot of those ancient names ha- had indeed died out by the time of the Hellenistic period. We, we don't find the name of Shalah any time after the kingdom period of Israel. But we, but we do find a lot of bad fake Judeans. Yeah. So, the boundary of Cornwall that separates Cornwall from England is the river, and the river's called the River Tamar. Obviously, um, Peter's wife, Tamar. Just, uh, there's a lot of place names that uh, are obviously Hebrew in origin. And they're, you know, they're thousands of years old, these names are, the names of these places. And there's a place called um, Marazion as well. There's this river Tamar that always got me because I always thought, well, is this? You know, why is it that name, this, this ancient name, when it comes from the Bible? And it's a pretty obscure person in the Bible. Well, yes, Tamar has a um, a lot of other reasons. I'm sorry, a lot of other meanings. Tamar means erect or upright, among other things. So, so that there's a lot of pl- reasons why a place may have been given such a name. Not necessarily after the person. That is, um, we discussed it recently, I believe. I, I had sent you some information somebody sent me on, on a word that means horns. Yeah. And, and, and we find the, the same place names in Wales as we do in, in, in Palestine in, in reference to that, to that word. So, so that there's, that there's definitely a lot of correlations that, that um, should be studied at greater depth. I don't know if I would ever have the time to do it. I, I don't know anything about Welsh, so I'm probably not the person to do, to do that. It's a lovely language to hear spoken around you. But it's apparently it's pretty hard to learn. I haven't picked up very much of it yet, but it's, a, it's just a really nice, friendly language to hear people speak. Well, well, that there's no doubt that there should be correlations between Welsh and Hebrew. I, I've often heard that Welsh is very close to Hebrew, but I can't really comment on that because I've never studied Welsh. So, yeah, so it's pretty, pretty complicated. <laughs> Lots of long words. Well, anyway, Bill, I've better let you um, finish your program. But uh, just thanks very much for all the work you do. Nice. It's excellent what you're doing. Well, thank you, Sven. And 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 we'll, well, we're going to um, announce something soon. Well, we have to sit and talk about it. We're, we're going to announce a monthly 
well, well, it might start out as monthly, uh, a monthly afternoon program or, well, well, I say afternoon from my perspective, right, <laughs> which is aimed at engaging with more Europeans, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come, and, and we'll an announce something um, firmer in the, in the near future. Thank you, Sven. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for calling. And that's it for, t for tonight. That's it. We will be here tomorrow night once again with open lines. And, and um, thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Good night.